the book of Revelation is about, and this is important, it is, and you see it in chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to just drive a New Testament person crazy, put an S on the end of this word. <laughs> it's not revelations. I will promise I will try to not correct you when I hear you do that. It's hard because it's significant. It is a revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelations, not a bunch of revelations about what's going to happen next Thursday. And I know how Americans, because of about 150 years of history, I know how Americans, and really as Americans, I don't even run across this in England, but as Americans, I know how Americans read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, as you're told in the first verse, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation means a revealing. Now, some people think it's a book written in code that only a few select people can understand and that it is a, 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 a history written beforehand of what's coming. I, I really want to disabuse you of that concept. I'll talk some more about how we approach the book of Revelation. But notice that it is a revelation, a revealing, not a, not a hiding of, but a revealing of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is about, is about Jesus Christ. Told that in the first sentence. The book of Revelation contains, I think, the highest Christology in the New Testament, which is why it's so important for us to know it and to know it well. Christology is just what we think about Jesus. So the book of Revelation offers the most exalted picture of Jesus in the New Testament, I think. Uh, the Gospel of John is a close second, perhaps. That's why we need to understand the book of Revelation, because we need a more exalted vision uh, of Jesus Christ. That's why I say revelation singular of Jesus Christ. Then just look at the rest of the text, and I'll come back to some introductory material, which God gave him, gave it to Jesus Christ, to show to his servants, to show to his servants, uh, and it, it does, the word there literally is doulos, is, is slaves, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. So it's a revelation given to Jesus. Jesus gives it to his servants. The primary servant here you're going to learn in four different places called John. It's a revelation given to Jesus who gives it to his servants about things that must when take place? Soon. Now you don't need a theology degree to know that soon means soon. Soon. You've got to be able first to read the book of Revelation just like you do with every other book in the Bible. You've got to read it as it was intended to be read. You've got to read it first as the people that first received the book. Because whatever John is receiving here is something that according, and I'll talk a little more about this, it's John, we know it's John, we were told that four different places, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a revelation about Jesus Christ, about things that will soon take place to John, to the person who's given this revelation, it's things that will soon take place to John, 
Um, and we think, and I'll talk about this a, a little more, we're probably around the year 95 AD, uh, at the end of the first century. Uh, I'll say a little more about dating and about John in a moment. But we're around the year 95 AD. This revelation is given from Jesus to the servants, primarily John, to give to the church. And it's about things that will soon take place. Now, like every book of the Bible, there was an application of that book to the people who first received it. And there's an application of that book for us. Uh, we do that with every, every, book, every other book of the Bible. You know, we'll see, you know, what John meant when John's gospel was being written to that first century church. And then we build the bridge to our life and our culture. And we determine, you know, how we apply what that first century church heard in John's gospel to our life. So that's just the way you deal with the Bible. You, you have to read it as it was meant to be read, receive it, try to receive it as it was meant to be received by the people who first received it, and then make application to our life today. The book of Revelation is about the only book, there's portions of other books, but it's about the only book in the New Testament, only is the only book in the New Testament, but there's portions in the gospel that, a moder that modern American Christians... They skip over the last 2,100 years. They don't even talk about what it meant to John in 95 AD when it was first given. And they, in good American fashion, they know. They know that the book has to be all about us. All about the 21st century. All about what's going to happen next week or next year or next decade. And they just totally ignore the people that first received the book. You wouldn't do that with the gospel. You wouldn't do that with anything else in the Bible. You try to read it as it was meant to be read. You try to hear it as it was meant to be heard and when it was first received. And then you build the bridge to our culture. You know, um, John would not have appreciated it or understood or appreciated if, if, if someone would have said to him that, yeah, those locusts, that you're reading about or that you're seeing in a vision, they're really helicopters from the 21st century. John would say, do what? One, 21st century, helicopters? Well, and then you'd have to say to John, well, John, you know, it's all about us. It's about our culture, our century, our situation, our future. Uh, John would say, I think the book had something to do with him and his people also. Christians of the first century needed this book as much as we needed this book. Um, so when anytime you're interpreting Bible, make sure you interpret it as it was written, to whom it was written, uh, and then you build the bridge to our culture. Uh, the other thing that is a basic principle of biblical interpretation that I see people use everywhere in the Bible until they turn to the book of Revelation is this principle. Let the clearer text of Scripture inform, help you understand, the less clear text of Scripture. Now, Revelation would probably fall in that category of less clear text of Scripture. And one of the reasons, and I'm, there's many, but one of the reasons weird things happen with the book of Revelation is people violate that principle. 
They just read the book of Revelation. They don't pay attention to what Paul said or what they read about Jesus or from Jesus in the Gospels. And, and they just kind of create a theology around the book of Revelation and make everything else fit it. Uh, I can just I can start Googling right now and show you hundreds of websites. That's exactly the way they deal with the book of Revelation. That's exactly the way a lot of pop preachers on television deal with the book of Revelation. Uh, you need to make the book of Revelation fit into what you know clearly from the rest of um, the Bible, such as, and I know this is a huge, huge topic, and we'll talk more about it as over the course of the year, but just to give you a little taste, in the last 150 years, which is yesterday in the life of the Christian church, there's been some Christians who have come to the decision that Jesus is coming back one and a half more times. That would surprise the church throughout most of our history. You know, the creeds just simply say he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. The, the historic church, we've always just said the second coming of Jesus. There's one and then there's two. That's good because I don't do math well. I can hang with that one. There's one. His first coming, you know, the Christmas story, and then there's a second coming. Um, the Bible is really clear about that. Church history is really clear about that. Uh, Christian teaching and preaching has been really clear about that until the last 150 years. Then all of a sudden, it started in Great Britain. It jumped the ocean. Now they don't do it in Great Britain. We're still doing it here in the United States. Uh, people started saying, no, no, Jesus is coming back one and a half more times. He's coming back halfway in what used to be called secret rapture. They don't call it secret anymore because they can't miss those, that verse from Paul where it's going to be the shout of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet. Not very secret. But for a hundred years they said it was a secret rapture where Jesus would come back halfway and take us up. We vacate planet Earth for seven years. And then he'll really come back after seven years of great tribulation. So he comes halfway back, takes his church out, seven years tribulation, and then the final second coming. Um, now again, I don't do math well, but that's one and a half comings any way you count it. And the church never, ever, ever saw that anywhere in Christian theology or tradition until some people started showing it to them in the last hundred years. Now, you're welcome to believe that. Uh, I believe the rapture, we're all going to be gathered to Christ at the end. I, 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 I just see a second coming. I see a second coming. By the way, the phrase second coming does not occur in the New Testament. We say that to try to talk about it. But the next, the, the return of Christ uh, will be when Christ comes. He gathers his church to himself. He vanquishes all evil. It's really very simple. He, he vanquishes evil. There's the great judgment. Uh, the kingdom of God is set up the end. Now that's much simpler than what some of the charts you will see today. And I'll talk some more about that. Uh, just so you know, for the theological nerds in the room, let me just throw it out there. And then if you're a theological nerd, it means something to you. If it doesn't, don't worry about it because we're getting ready to move on. I, I am not a dispensationalist. Some of you may or may not know what that is. If you don't, that's fine. But they're the crowd that sees one and a half comings of Jesus that none of us have seen for 2,000 years. I'm not a dispensationalist. I'm a very much a traditionalist. Uh, I, I, I use historical 
uh, contemporary method of studying the New Testament and including the book of Revelation. So I'm going to look at it in its first century context and draw out the spiritual principles for us today. And they're there. The book of Revelation, like all books of the Bible, have application to every age. John's and ours. Now, that may not mean a lot to you what I just said. If you have been um, heavily influenced by the modern dispensationalist movement, God bless you. There's a lot I appreciate about them. But I, a lot of us have some serious issues from a traditional perspective as to how they view the end of history. Uh, we just keep one more coming of Christ out there and the end. And I think that's what we see in the New Testament. Anyway, so if that meant something to you, you've heard it. If that didn't, just kind of bracket it out. We'll keep returning to it. Um, the creed just simply says he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he is. Pretty simple. Uh, there will be a wrap-up to history. We don't believe in karma. We don't believe that everything goes around comes around. It does maybe to a certain extent, but we're also on a journey. This is something that's basic Judaism does. History is on a journey. Uh, we're going somewhere. There was a beginning, there's a middle, and there will be an end. Uh, that's basic Judaism, and of course Christianity accepted that. So, yeah, it's going to all be wrapped up one of these days. You know, maybe... Three times a day, if you're a traditional historical Christian, very much in the ancient model, maybe three times a day you're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will happen one day. And the book of Revelation, in a sense, may be just simply a commentary on thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This may be a commentary on that, that petition from the Lord's Prayer. So, um, you know, if, if you're looking at the book of Revelation, you know, to try to figure out um, whether or not Donald Trump is the Antichrist, it will help you some. It may not help you a lot. Uh, it may convince you he is, but it, there's no guarantee he's the last one. There's been a lot throughout history. There is an Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Uh, the, the word Antichrist, like the word rapture, does not occur in the book of Revelation. Uh, the word Antichrist comes from uh, John's letters uh, in the New Testament. We'll talk about all of that. But I, I will broaden the influence and the spiritual teaching of the book of Revelation to make sure it fits John's world, to make sure there's a reason they received it in the first century, and to make it very applicable to our culture today. So uh, just kind of file a little bit of that away, and more of that will make sense. We've got a long time to spend lunch together over the course of the next several months. So the synopsis of the book is it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, an exaltation of Jesus Christ. The book, though, the way it's going to specifically show you that is to answer the question, who is on the throne? Because Christians of all ages have gotten confused on that topic. Who is on the throne? The book of Revelation was given to the first century church and the 21st century church to remind us things are not as they seem. Uh, that's why the book of Revelation, you, you, see a, you see a Christian philosophy of history, where we are and where we're going, is definitely there in the book of Revelation. And it fits what else is in the New Testament. Um, but it's, it's a revelation of Jesus to remind us how exalted Jesus is to see who's on the throne. The book of Revelation is unique in the New Testament. It keeps picturing a throne. 
Sometimes it talks about God being on the throne. Sometimes it talks about the Lamb being on the throne. That's one of the favorite images for Jesus in the book of Revelation, the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Uh, So sometimes you see the Lamb on the throne. Sometimes you see God on the throne. Sometimes in one verse you'll see both on the throne. And that makes perfect sense to Trinitarian Christians. And, you know, it doesn't confuse us. Um, It's a very exalted image of Jesus. Uh, Again, the the book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It exalts Jesus to help the community realize that things are not as they seem. To remind us who's on the throne, even if, you know, social media makes it look otherwise. Uh, To help us persevere. The word persevere occurs, watch this, the word persevere occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. I've given you, I'm going to talk a little bit about apocalyptic literature. I've given you a a handout with symbols because you're going to run across these symbols throughout, such as the symbol seven. You see it there on your handout what the symbol seven symbolizes. What does symbol seven symbolize? Perfection, completion. You know, we know why the Jewish mind did this um, seven days in the week. Um, anyway, it's, it's amazing how the number seven keeps reoccurring in the book of Revelation. There's some obvious uses of the number seven, seven trumpets, seven seals, but there's a lot of not quite so obvious uses of seven, like the word perseverance, seven times. This book is to help you perfectly persevere. Um, so this book is to help you persevere, to know that uh, no reality from a Christian point of view to know a Christian philosophy of history from a Christian point of view. Uh, the, the first community that received this, this writing obviously need to hear that, like I suspect we need to hear that. Uh, this Scholars date this book in one of two places. The closest to a consensus will be around the year 95 AD. Uh, John received it around the year 95 AD. Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire. This John, and again, we're just told four times in the book the author's name is John. We know he's very Jewish. There's like 400 allusions to the Old Testament in this book. He's very Jewish. He refers himself as a prophet. He thinks Hebraically. The Greek here is a very hard, harsh Greek. Uh, kind of rough. It's obvious it's a second language. It's not even as polished as, like, for instance, the Greek of the Gospel of John. This is a very different style. Uh, The author just says John. We know he's Jewish. We know he's imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony. Uh, He tells you he's in prison there because of his faith. Uh, and he's, he's there in prison on the Isle of Patmos, not far off the coast, coast of Ephesus, uh, present-day Turkey. He's in prison there, and he receives a series of visions. And it all had to mean something to him. It all had to mean something to his church. Uh, it's usually placed during, during the reign of Domitian because a lot of the early church fathers placed it during that reign. People like Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, a lot of early church fathers place during the reign of Domitian. There are a few people out there who argue it for an earlier date, about 20 years earlier, um, 30 years earlier, into the 60s, during Nero's reign. 
Nero did persecute some Christians, particularly around Rome, but there were, there were no general empire-wide persecutions of Christians in Nero's time. There actually were very few in ancient history. Uh, more of it was happening in Domitian's time. So Domitian was an emperor in the 90s. Nero was an emperor in the um, 60s. It was under Nero that both Paul and Peter were, were probably killed uh, for their faith. Some people will want to put the book of Revelation in the 60s. Uh, one of my primary biblical mentors has written extensively trying to put the book in the 60s under Nero. Uh, and we'll, when we talk about 666 and the beast and the mark of the beast, all that stuff, uh, Nero versus Domitian will become a little bit more important. But the, the general consensus is Domitian. Um, Domitian was a Roman emperor. What happened with Augustus? Augustus, the first um, person who declared himself an emperor, was after Augustus died, he was deified by the people. Uh, after, and that happened for a while. After Claudius died, deified by the people. After a while, some of the Roman emperors didn't think that was good enough. They wanted to be deified during their lifetime. Caligula did a little bit of that. Nero did a little bit of that. Domitian did a lot of that. Uh, Domitian actually would refer to himself as um, Dominus, um, Lord. We have lots of coins from the first century where we see images of Domitian. He refers to himself as Lord and Savior. Well, those words mean something very specific to us Christians. But Domitian wanted to claim that for himself while he was alive. Uh, a lot of the Roman Empire gave him emperor worship. Emperor worship was stronger in places like Turkey, uh, Asia Minor in the biblical world, where the seven churches of Revelation will be found. Emperor worship was stronger there than, f for instance, it was around Rome even. I mean, people around Rome got to see this guy that was emperor. It was harder for them to worship him as Lord and Savior. Um, they respected him and maybe were willing to worship him as, as being a deity after his death. But emperor worship was taking some getting some ground uh, during, um, particularly during Domitian, and he was wanting to claim uh, deity status. So that got a lot of Christians in trouble. Now, if you're in the ancient world that has hundreds of gods, you can just add one more god to your list and go about your business, right? The job of the early Christian community was not to convince Greco-Roman folks that Jesus Christ was divine. That was an easy sell in the Greco-Roman world. Because they made gods out of the emperor. They made gods right and left. They were polytheistic. They had hundreds of gods. The hard sale for the early Christian community and what got us in trouble was Jesus Christ is God and you can't have any others. You can't add him to your list and include the emperor. Well, you can imagine how the culture around John uh, responded to that. They were seen as not patriotic. They were seen as not patriotic. They wouldn't worship Roma. Roma was the, the goddess of Rome. If you're a good Roman, you deify and respect the emperor. If you're a good Roman, you worship daily, maybe, at the, at the altar of Roma, the goddess of Rome. Well, hopefully I don't have to explain to you why that's all problematic for the Christians. We, we don't do that. Uh, we believe in one God. That's our Jewish nature. Now, the Jews in the first century had a past usually, from the Roman world. They had a get-out-of-jail-free card in the Roman world. 
And they, because they wouldn't worship one God, they wouldn't do all this Roman stuff. But because of the antiquity of the Jewish faith, they were a religio licta. They were a, an approved religion. So the Romans said, yeah, you're weird, you're unpatriotic, you won't worship all the gods, you won't worship God as Roma, you won't worship Caesar, but you're weird, and we get it. You've been doing this for a thousand years, so we give you a pass. Well, for a little while, we Christians benefited from that get-out-of-jail-free card. But particularly by John's day, particularly by Domitian's day, we Christians had moved in more ways than just geographically. We had moved beyond Jerusalem. We were becoming a heavily Gentile movement. And we didn't look, as the years passed, we looked a little less and less Jewish. So the Romans then would look at the Jews. They had legitimate standing as an ancient religion, older than the Roman Empire, and they were sort of tolerated. Well, the Christians, we were just seen as a superstition, an anti-patriotic superstition. So that um, did not end well for us a lot of times. The book of Revelation, a lot of times, some of your study Bibles will do this. I do hope you have a good study Bible. Uh, as far as translation, I will try to usually have the English Standard Version in front of me. I try to do the same version uh, each week because some of you, can, you, you do better if you are reading what I have. I, I think it's rich to have different translations, but just so you know, I got the ESV in front of me. I hope you have a good study Bible. A lot of study Bibles will even say the book of Revelation is written to a persecuted church in the first century. Uh, maybe, somewhat, a little bit. Read the text. There's only one person martyred in the book of Revelation that's referenced. His name is Antipas. So there's some, there's some Christians dying. Um, and we know that it was not ending well for some Christians, like John. He's imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. But we don't know that there was widespread persecution, active persecution going on when John received the letter. And this is where I think this letter even applies more to us today than we realize. It was not so much written to a church as being persecuted. It was written to a church, and you'll see this particularly in chapters 2 and 3, when you look at the seven churches of Revelation, real churches that existed in that day. It was written to a church not so much that was actually being persecuted, except in places maybe. It was written to a church in danger of accommodating. That is very clear for the book of Revelation. You know, it was written to a church where people just thought, you know, just get along to get by. You know, if we have to go to the Caesar event on Saturday and go worship the risen Christ on Sunday, we might be able to do both. That's what I mean by accommodating. Uh, you'll see in the book of Revelation that evidently it, it cost a lot economically if they didn't accommodate. Uh, it cost a lot as far as employment if they did not accommodate. It cost a lot as far as social status and how your family and friends viewed you if you did not accommodate. Uh, but, but the author was smart enough to know that, yeah, we're at that point now that more and more Christians are either accommodating the culture or they're doing like John, refusing to accommodate, and they're ending up on an island of a penal colony. Um, so the book is really written to make sure we remember who Jesus is, to make sure that we remember that strong enough, to make sure that we don't accommodate to our culture in ways that would not 
glorify or bless the heart of God. Um, you're going to really see that strongly uh, in chapters 2 and 3 when you do the seven churches of Revelation. You know, I, I, I think I, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of another book of the New Testament that is more applicable to the 21st century than a book that's going to encourage us to not always accommodate. Be careful. Uh, the early Christian church, we call that Greco-Roman world and all the gods, their big, one of their biggest dangers was syncretism, religious syncretism. Now, you probably did not wake up this morning thinking, my biggest danger as a Christian is syncretism. Maybe, maybe it is, though. Let me make sure you understand what religious syncretism is. Uh, the first century church, the church that um, was spreading around the Greco-Roman world, the church of John, the church that first received the book of Revelation, they were in danger of taking a little bit of Jesus, taking a little bit of Jupiter, taking a little bit of Roma, go to the city events on Saturday and the Christian events on Sunday. That's syncretism. You know, where you see religion as sort of a buffet and you just kind of pick and choose the pieces you want. Religious syncretism has always been an issue for Christians because, again, we're monotheists, one God. I mean, if I could have 25 gods in my life, it would be so much easier. I would not irritate anybody. <laughs> but for Jews and for Christians, it's, 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 it's an interesting place to be. We're monotheists, one God. And we have to be careful about accommodating and being syncretistic. To just take a little bit of culture, take a little bit of, I mean, I don't know that we have to be Amish. We don't have to be Amish, I don't think, I hope. There's a lot about modern life I like. But the Amish can, can be a good reminder and a good challenge for us. They say, okay, maybe you don't have to be Amish, but you may be accepting way too much. That's accommodating and syncretism. You know, uh, it's like if you travel, well, I just got back from Peru. Don't mean this negatively, it's just a statement of fact. In, in Peru, like a lot of Latin Americans, particularly some of the Caribbean, it's not uncommon to find a little Christianity mixed in with a little voodoo. And I talked to several pastors who had to tell, in Peru, several pastors who had to keep telling their people, stop it, you can't. No, it's not okay. You can't do a little voodoo and a little Christianity. Um, you know, that's, that's accommodation, that's syncretism. And the book of Revelation is written to a church that is in danger of this. You'll see it throughout the book of Revelation. That's why I think it's so applicable for us today. Now, you'll see, you know, John's day, you'll see, I think, the trajectory of Christian history. And you'll see the end of Christian history, I think, is um, presented as it's presented in the New Testament. Um, that's probably enough. Let me talk about how the book is written. Because uh, your homework is to go read that list of symbols as you're reading the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, I wrote the word up here on the newsprint, apocalyptic. Now, apocalyptic was a, a very popular style of writing from about 250 B.C. to about 200 A.D. So we have a lot of examples of apocalyptic literature. Um, the only piece of apocalyptic literature you know, and I'm going to find apocalyptic in a minute, is the book of Revelation. Because you probably haven't read The Shepherd of Hermas lately. You probably haven't read Enoch lately. You probably haven't read, I can go on and on, so, uh, the, the Psalms of Solomon lately. I mean, apocalyptic literature was all over the ancient world. That's why, like that list of symbols I've given you, 
That's why we, we pretty much know what these symbols mean. Because this was a common style in the first century. It's not a common style today. You have to read every piece of literature the way it was intended. I mean, hopefully you, wouldn't, you would not read a piece of poetry the way you'd read you know, the manual that was written to teach you how to use your Mr. Coffee, coffee maker. You read those things differently. Um, when you read apocalyptic literature, you've got to know how to do something with symbols and symbolism. Apocalyptic literature is, is written, was written, more to be seen, pictures are going to be painted, and more to be felt than to be analyzed. Now, we're post-enlightenment. We're in the scientific age. We like to analyze things. If you want to analyze things, the book of Revelation would drive you crazy. You got to just try to see the picture and feel what the vision is meant to help you feel. And one of the reasons people get so confused in the book of Revelation, we want it to be written in a very modern way that, you know, here's chapter 1, here's chapter 22, and it's a straight linear development. It's not that way. Now, some of the people who do some really weird things with the book of Revelation try to read it that way. It's not that way. For instance... There's 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. Jesus is born in chapter 12. You see the exaltation of Jesus in chapter 5 in a dramatic way. And you see Jesus walking among his churches in chapters 2 and 3. Yeah, for those of you that are strongly linear thinkers, the book of Revelation is going to be a little challenge. There are recurring visions. Um, as we get into it, I'll, I'll show you that I, I agree with a lot of Christian tradition. I think they're, they're actually, each of the visions may be self-contained. Each of the visions may actually run the gamut from the incarnation to the second coming. And they may run that gamut, and they may be presenting the visions with increasing intensity. But you have to learn to read a piece of apocalyptic literature differently than you would read uh, the manual to your coffee maker. I, I used to say you, you read apocalyptic literature differently than you'd read the, the, the newspaper, but I'm changing on that one. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to read my newspaper like I'd read my manual to my coffee maker. Sometimes it's a little, I'm not sure what it is these days. But you know, that's why in the Bible you've got prose, you've got history, you've got poetry, and then you've got an apocalyptic literature that's a series of visions. There's part of the book of Daniel that's apocalyptic. We know a lot about apocalyptic literature. That's why we know seven, whenever you read it, symbolizes completion. Four, whenever you read it, symbolizes all of creation. You know, the four corners of the earth, which we now know there's not four corners, but the ancients didn't. Um, the four winds. Um, so we know these symbols had general meanings. I used to, when I taught an undergraduate, when I taught undergraduates, I used to use this, and I realized they didn't know what I was talking about. I had to change. But I, I'm looking around this room. I think you'll get this. Let's pretend. Let's pretend you're an archaeologist about 2,000 years from now, if we're still around, and you've dug up some archaeology from that country that used to exist, the United States of America, and you, you, you've run across some literature, some, some primary sources that you've dug up, and, and in it, you find the date, 1976, follow me. You found the date, 1976. You find that um, it's, it's around November 1976. 
You with me? Yeah, you're, you're, but some of you are older than I am. You know what happened in 1976. Um, and you, you're, you're, you're scrolling through what you may not know as, as a somehow preserved old newspaper, you know, that was printed in November of 1976. And all of a sudden, here's this picture talking about what's going on in America. And it's this big smiling peanut sitting on top of a donkey that just whipped this elephant. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Maybe, maybe it's not undergraduates. Maybe it's everybody in America. Jimmy Carter beat, you know, Jimmy Carter beat the Republican nominee. Donkey, elephant, peanut, smiling. That's sort of apocalyptic literature. Now, you know, that, would, that was not written that way in 1976 to hide anything from you. You knew exactly what it was in 1976. What you see in the book of Revelation, they knew exactly what they were reading in the year 95. It's a little challenging for us because we're not used to reading their kinds of cartoons. We're not used to reading those kinds of symbols. That's why I'm giving you that list of symbols. Uh, that's your cheat sheet for the book of Revelation, and I'll keep returning to it. Uh, but that, that's your cheat sheet uh, that just gives you common ways that, that symbols are used in apocalyptic literature. So, um, let me just finish the text and I'm finished. Just, and we'll return to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place had application in that age. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now again, is this John as in John and James, John the Apostle? Um, there's differences in style between this letter and the Gospels. Uh, the early church was pretty unanimous in saying it was the Apostle John. And they had really interesting ways of um, dealing with the differences in style in the Greek between uh, Revelation and, and the Gospel and the letters. Um, don't know for sure. The only thing the author, I told you, the only thing that the text tells you, John, Jewish, a prophet, that's what you're told. On the Isle of Patmos, in prison for his faith. It could be that John or another John. But I think what's obvious is, you know, if I wrote a letter to the Christian church in Asia Minor and said, this letter's from Jeff, they would say, who? <laughs> if I wrote a letter to West Memorial Church, it'd be somebody saying, who? <laughs> so obviously, for him to say, John, it has to be somebody well-known, uh, well-known to the churches. So he made it known by sending his angels. There's God, Jesus, angel, sent it to John. Uh, Sent to John, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God, one of the favorite phrases of both gospel and book revelation for Jesus, word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We have ample opportunity to talk about that. To the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 is a beatitude. Most of the time when you think about beatitudes, you think about the blessed R's that you find at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Well, there are beatitudes scattered throughout the book of Revelation. Here's the first one, first, verse 3 of the first chapter. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is, I'm going to say it again, near. Now, I'll just close with this. There's a beatitude. 
You want to take a guess as to how many Beatitudes are in the book of Revelation? There's seven of them. You will be perfectly blessed if you read the book and do what the book's going to tell you. So that's enough for today. Probably enough to get your uh, juices flowing. We'll have a lot of time to continue discussing uh, the book of Revelation over the course of our time together. Find someone you don't know or someone you don't know well. I know we've got some new folks in our midst. So greet each other, make friends, and go in peace. Thanks for coming.